0: Well, good morning, Mercy House. I'm Pastor Tommy. and I'm grateful to have this opportunity to continue walking with you through the second half of Romans. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles if you have not, and to keep them open to Romans chapter 9. It's going to be really important this morning, as with every Sunday, for you to not take my word for it, but to see with your own eyes what God has declared in His holy word. And as you're turning there, let me just give you a brief summary of last week because it sets up a lot of what we're talking about today. And last week, we walked through what was an overview of Romans while paying close attention to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, which um, are Paul's thesis statement, uh, his main argument, which is going to frame the entire rest of the letter to the Romans. And the main idea is that God's righteousness is revealed or made manifest through faith. We spent the rest of our time last week uh, looking at Paul's expansion of these verses in Romans chapter three, verses twenty-one through twenty-six, and and I exhorted you that if you memorize no other verses in twenty twenty-three, then then to make it these verses. So star it, highlight it, underline it, write it on a sticky note, and put it on your computer monitor or your bathroom mirror. And and here's a portion of that Romans chapter three, uh, starting in verse twenty-one but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The way that God takes our sin and makes us righteous is called justification. And without justification, we stand condemned by our own sin We talked about that last week, but God has manifested his righteousness to us, and it's not obtained through obedience. It's not accessed through any action or any work, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And that righteousness is total and complete. That standing that we have before God in his righteousness is unflinching. There's no such thing as a lesser Christian or a partial Christian. You are are either justified fully by faith or you are not. This is the doctrine of justification. God's righteousness is not accessed by anything of our own doing. It's not a result of any work. It is not merited. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, does this mean that our actions are not important? That maybe it doesn't matter how we live out our lives if justification is by faith alone and not by works or by obedience to God or his word. This is probably the most common critical response to justification by faith alone. And the answer is that our actions absolutely matter and how we live out our lives is incredibly important as Christians, but our obedience to God comes after our salvation. Abraham's obedience from his circumcision, which we talked a lot about last week, to his willingness to offer up his son Isaac, to the many instances where God led and directed him in life were all after his initial justification, which happened when he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's Romans 4 verse 11. The Christian faith in Christ alone produces obedience, but obedience does not produce the faith. Paul talks about Christian living and what our lives ought to look like in this letter to the Romans, but it's important to Paul that we make this very clear distinction. We don't obey God and live a certain way in order to be Christian. We become Christians through faith alone and are now called to live as righteous, pure, and holy sons and daughters of God as we actually are. Now, remember, this is the core message of Romans, and it's a core pillar of the gospel, so we need to keep this in mind and even return to it as we continue on in this letter to the Romans. Now, the rest of Romans is broken up into two subdivisions. You you can see uh, chapters 9 through 11, and then you see chapters 12 through 16. And chapters 12 through 16 are incredibly practical, They very intuitively flow out of Paul's thesis statement, his core message of the letter. And Paul shows the Romans in these chapters, uh, based on God's righteousness being made, manifested in us, how we ought to then live. But these next few chapters, 9 through 11, historically, theologians didn't really know what to do with them. Some view them as a very tangential thought almost like these three three chapters ought to be um, a giant parenthesis um, because they appear appear to deviate away from Paul's main point. There's actually a trend to just skip these chapters altogether when reading Romans in various churches and communities, but that is not what we're going to do because I do believe that when you take time to study these chapters and place these chapters into the larger context and narrative of all of Scripture— They are incredibly helpful, incredibly beautiful, and reveal a lot about God to us. So with that, let me pray for us, and then let's dive in. Father, we come before you together this morning in need of the sustenance and life that comes from your word. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, and God, we are a hungry people. And so Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning. Help us discern these spiritual truths. Give us the eyes and ears to see and to hear from you. God, please soften our hearts so that we can receive these words. These are not things that are merely humanly possible. And so we pray for the supernatural work of your Holy Spirit to make known the glory of the risen Christ in the book of Romans this morning. Father, We pray that you would change us, that you would transform us this morning. God, we thank you that you have chosen us and have appointed this time, this morning, for us to hear your word. And so may your truth, the truth of your word, be written on the tablet of our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. All right, this is going to be part one of a two-part sermon in chapter nine. There's a lot in this chapter that we uh, want to be able to, to take our time getting through. And, and here's a brief outline of this morning's uh, passage. So the first thing we're gonna see is Paul sharing his heartbreak over those who have not put their faith in Christ alone and who have not been justified, but are condemned in their sin. And then we're gonna see Paul answer the question, does this mean that God's promises have failed since there are some within God's family who have not been saved? And so he's going to explain that God's promises have not failed. And he's gonna point to two examples from history to explain why. The first is Abraham's son, Isaac, and the promise over his life and lineage, and also Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau, and God's promise over them. So let's just jump in. Chapter 9 of Romans, starting in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed As Paul makes it past the halfway point of his letter, he takes a moment to plant his feet into the ground to make sure that the Romans know that he is not messing around, that this is not merely an intellectual exercise for him. This is not a philosophical, hypothetical rambling that he's doing. He's saying, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, as if Jesus himself is standing over his shoulder, holding him accountable for each of his words that he's using. He then appeals to the Holy Spirit, saying in verse 2, My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Which means that there is a sense here that this isn't just Paul's thoughts or Paul's ideas that we're reading. Remember back to Corey Tumman's sermon in January on John 16, when Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples before his torture and crucifixion, and he says to them in chapter 16, verse 13, When the spirit of truth comes, this is Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So we can piece these things together and see that Paul is actually a fulfillment. This moment is a fulfillment of Jesus' promise in John 16 right there. And Paul is digging his feet in. He's saying, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. As he sits there with pen to paper and this holy committee of the Godhead, inspiring all of his thinking and all of his writing, And his big appeal, that he's not making these things up, but that we ought to believe him is seen in verse 2. He says that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. The reason why we know Paul is telling the truth is because he's heartbroken. As he remembers his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters who who don't know Christ, the reality that God has shown his power through the gospel and has justified those who believe in him is also including the reality that there are others who are still condemned in their sin, who have not believed in him, who are dead men and women walking, eternally separated from God in his righteousness, and they are awaiting horrific judgment and wrath. And for some of us, this may have been a very visceral experience. It might continue to be a visceral experience. Our great joy of salvation can often be abruptly stopped right in its tracks. So when we're experiencing the thrill of hope in Christ and the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of being made right with God, and then our heart just drops out from under us when we remember that mom or dad or or sister or brother our best friend, or our grandmother, or our grandfather, that they don't have this joy. This is how we can know Paul isn't lying, because he is well aware of the painful side of the good news of the gospel. And God knows the great sorrow and the unceasing anguish that is in Paul's heart for those who don't know Christ. And look at what he says, verse 3, and what is perhaps one of the craziest things that's ever been said in the Bible. Look at verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul says, if I could, I'd trade places with them. This is not someone who has COVID and Paul's like, oh, I wish it were me who had COVID and not you. That's not the situation. Paul is saying, my heart is so broken for them that I could wish that I were accursed The word there is anathema, condemned, excommunicated, cut off from Christ. I wish I could go to hell for all of eternity so that they would not have to. Talk about compassion for the lost. Talk about selfless sacrifice modeled after Jesus Christ himself. Those who have been justified by faith alone. When made soberly aware of life apart from Christ alone, should be brought to grief and sorrow for those who are in their sin alone. See, being on mission to make disciples is a command for a believer, but it's also a compulsion inside of the believer, a compulsion that's driven by compassion and care for those who are eternally dead in their sin. If someone came through those doors over there with a compound fracture on their femur, with lacerations all across their face, spitting up blood, choking as they tried to breathe, you would help them. I imagine a lot of you would run over there and and out of compassion, you would do anything that you could to save their life. But some of us don't have eyes like this for the spiritual eternal emergency that the pandemic of sin has caused in the unbelievers around us. But Paul did, and it weighed on him. It fueled him, actually. It, it energized him like, like a fire inside of his bones to preach the gospel, to make sure as many people as humanly possible could hear the good news and, Lord willing, be justified and forgiven through faith in Jesus. Who is the person in your life that God has put you in the life of to share the gospel with. Who has God given you great sorrow for, great anguish for in your heart? And, and not so that sadness can be an ends in and of itself, but to drive us to pray for and reach out to and plead on behalf of their salvation. And Satan would want nothing more for us than for us to be heartless and passive and feeling powerless and defeated. But in reality, we are not heartless. That's not the way that we're made. We're made in the compassionate, loving image of God. We're not called to passivity or powerlessness because we're given a spirit of power and of love with a gospel that isn't just powerful. Remember back Romans chapter 1 verse 16, Paul saying, "I for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul is specifically heartbroken for his ethnic brothers and sisters, the nation of Israel. And there's a specific grief that Paul has as he reflects on the fact that the story of God was written with them, the people of Israel, being at the center of it all. To use the words from uh, chapter 3, verse 1, his Jewish brothers and sisters had every advantage to be able to identify Jesus as the Christ and to receive him through faith. The Jews were ethnically God's chosen people. They were adopted into God's family. They, they saw and they experienced God's glory in many miraculous, incredible ways. They participated in God's covenants. They received God's law and his promises. They were given spiritual leaders to guide them. And Jesus himself, the, the ultimate promise whom salvation would come from and come through, was one of them. He was an ethnic Jew. So we need to remember that this is incredibly personal, not just for Paul, but for all the Jews who were in Rome at this time. This heartbreak was not just Paul's, but his brothers and his sisters in Rome would have looked around. They would have felt the same anguish when they saw other Jewish brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts who didn't believe in Jesus. Now, some of us can relate to this today. There are people in our lives who have received every advantage for faith. And probably not the advantages of a Jewish heritage, but plenty of opportunities for them to give their lives to Jesus through faith. Maybe they grew up with Christian parents in Christian homes. Maybe they had Christian neighbors or surrounded by Christian friends. Maybe they grew up going to youth group every Wednesday night. Maybe they went to Christian conferences or went to the Christian summer camps. Maybe they celebrated Christmas in a wholesome, gospel-centered way each and every year. Or maybe they had not just Christian parents, but Christian parents who taught them God's word and who prayed over them each night and who sang them hymns as they went to bed. And maybe they went on to be surrounded by friends and Christian fellowships and ministries on campus. Maybe they've had all of this and you've brought them to church and maybe they're even here today, yet they still have not come to Christ to be justified by faith. And so a natural, intuitive question is, why has God not worked in their life? Why has God not brought them to salvation? Some of you who have grown up in the church or grown up in the faith have people in your lives who you were friends with, or maybe even your siblings, who were given every spiritual advantage as you, yet here you are today in church, and you know for a fact that a church is the last place that they would ever be. So why you and not them? This is a heartbreaking but raw line of questioning which Paul anticipates. And they all terminate in this final question. Does this mean that God's word has failed? If people who have been set up to receive the gospel, if God's own people who were given every advantage didn't recognize Jesus, if some of Paul's Jewish brothers and sisters are not justified by faith in Christ, then has God failed in some way? Well, let's read on and see. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Amen. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they were his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So Paul's response to this question is, God has not failed his people whom he has promised to redeem and save when we understand who God's people actually are. Now, wait a minute, I thought the nation of Israel were God's people, and we saw last week how those who were circumcised were God's people, but Paul says that's not the right way to understand who God's people are. Now, this isn't a new concept, even in this letter. Romans chapter 2 has Paul explaining to those who have a lot of confidence in their circumcision, this mark of their Jewishness, and they place a lot of confidence in it for their value, and the value toward their standing with God. But look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What Paul is saying here is there's something more going on than just this outward mark on the flesh. So being Jewish or one of God's people, it's not a matter of the flesh or really anything that appears outwardly, but it is a matter of the heart. And when we go back to chapter 9 with this, it helps us understand Paul's response to this rhetorical question. Look at verse 6 again. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. God's promise to rescue and save his people from their sin, his promise to justify his people through faith alone, was not made to all ethnic blood descended Israel. The promise was not if you have Abraham's blood in your veins, then you will be saved. On the contrary, we see two examples here where God delineates those whom these promises apply. And the first is with Abraham's son Isaac and his lineage and legacy, not his older brother Ishmael's. And the second is a further delineation of God's promise with Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau. Now, this is where things this morning might get difficult for us as hearers of God's word. And this is a time where it's incredibly important for you to read what I'm reading and for you to hear what I'm saying. A question you might be asking right now is, wait, Pastor Tommy, are are you saying that God's promises aren't for everyone but only for some? And my response would be, based on the word of God that is in front of us right now, that appears to be the case. This is how Paul explains that there have been some ethnic Jews who are saved and some who are not, and that fact doesn't make God a liar or a failure. And he does this by pointing out the reality that there has always been a subset, there's always been a remnant from within the larger nation of Israel whom God's specific promises rested. So another way to look at it is that all of Abraham's lineage were Jewish, but there was something special about Isaac's lineage and not Ishmael's. And all of Isaac's children were Jewish, but there was something special about Jacob's lineage and not Esau's. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Those are the words that we just read. And in other words, not all those who descend from Abraham are chosen by God, To experience justification. Well, wait a minute. This sounds a lot like some of God's people are predetermined for faith or chosen ahead of time. It sounds a lot like predestination. And to be frank, Romans 9 is one of the main texts for how we understand the doctrine of election, which is this idea that God chooses those who will be justified by faith, those who will be saved. And now you understand why some churches skip over these chapters altogether. But bear with the text for a minute here. Let's read on and see where Paul is going with this. Picking up in verse 10, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, Paul's second example to help us understand why God's promises didn't fall flat is a little bit more explicit. Paul doubles down on this idea that some are chosen for faith by giving us this example of Jacob and Esau. But the highlight of this example is not the fact that God elects or chooses people for faith, but actually when he elects and chooses them for faith. The example of Jacob and Esau is purposeful. They have the same father, Isaac. They have the same mother, Rebecca. They have the same womb. They're they're twins after all. And so for all intents and purposes, this is as ideal as you can get if you want to perform a controlled experiment involving humans. And what Paul reminds us of is that in this biblical example, God communicates his choice of one and not the other. He chooses Jacob, who will later on be called Israel and who will carry on the lineage of God's promise, and not Esau and his descendants, the Edomites. Remember, this example is important specifically because of when God chooses and elects Jacob. So lean in here and, and read with me. Verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. When does God choose Jacob. Well, he does it when he's still in the womb. And as we talk about the doctrine of justification, this is where all arguments for the works-based or works-infused righteousness fall completely flat. This is the example we can look to when we think that we need to have a hand some way in some form in our own salvation. What work or merit can Jacob uh, in the womb point to and say, this is what produces faith in me? If Jacob is chosen for faith when he's in the womb, what credit can he claim for his future salvation by faith? Is Jacob able to say that God saved him because he was a good follower of God or because he kept his ducks in a row or because he's been obedient or good? No, Jacob is literally floating in amniotic fluid, sucking his thumb, having every beat of his heart and ounce of nutrition sustained by the body of his mother while he's under the sovereign preservation of God, the Father of all creation. That is when God makes his choice of Jacob. Now, when Christians talk about election, election, or the fact that God chooses some and not others, this often causes dissonance in our own souls and an uncomfortable tension in our chest, maybe. Maybe we feel the the heat rising in the back of our necks as we immediately wonder, well, what about Esau? How can a loving God choose some and seemingly discard others? And look, we're going to get there. And literally the next verse, as Paul talks about this, um, whether or not this makes God unjust, We're going to devote all of next week talking about the fairness of it all. But before we get there, let's sit for a minute in this idea of God's sovereign election of those whom he loves. If God has chosen us for faith, as he did Jacob... If God has elected us for salvation and decided before any of our actions, any of our sin, before our best day on earth and our worst day on earth, before we were capable of loving or hating, before we knew how to bless or how to curse, if God chose us before we even took our first breath on earth, if that is true, do you have any idea how secure you are in your standing before God and your future in him? There's a myth that I think many of us think is our reality, that we're walking through life on this cosmic tightrope, and our ability to balance on the wobbly line of salvation is the metaphor for our faith. And so the storms of life and the gusts of temptation and the sideways rain of sin leave us anxiously struggling for balance as if our eternal destiny rests in our ability to not fall into oblivion. That is not our reality, Christian. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work out for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Nothing is left to chance for those who love God and those whom God loves if he has called you in the womb, he will call you to faith through his word. And if he has called you to faith in his word and you believe, he will justify you completely. And if he has justified you, he will finish what he began in you, Philippians 1.6. And you will stand at the end of time as a fully glorified son or daughter of God, perfectly reflecting the image of God in absolute un- unity with God for the rest of of eternity. There is no tightrope walking in this journey, brothers and sisters. There is only the solid foundation of Christ that we stand on and the strong arm of the Lord as he walks us from womb to eternity. The doctrine of election and God's sovereign rule and reign over all aspects of his creation to sustain and govern all the little details and the big details This gives believers great security and peace and comfort, but not without raising some questions. And here are two that I imagine are at the forefront. The first is, what about our free will? And the second is, how is this all fair? Now, Paul is going to tackle the second question in these next verses that we're going to cover next week, but for the remainder of our time this morning, let's talk about this idea of free will. If someone raises an objection to God's election and the idea that that predestination can't be true because we have free will, I would first ask, what do you mean by free will? If by free will, you mean I can freely do this and wave my arms all around, or or maybe this, like I can jump up and down if I will and want to, then I would say, sure, you, you seem to have the ability to think and act with some agency. But if by free will, you mean that you think that we can act freely and independently from any other force or influence outside of our own will, including God and His will, I would say that's not really an idea that we see in the Bible. Now, we'd like to think we have this type of free will. Perhaps that's valued as really empowering to have this sense of control and agency in a really broken and sinful world. But even earlier in this letter, Paul reminds us in Romans 6 that before we were justified, we were slaves to sin. This is chapter 6, verse 6. Sin is something that not only affects our behavior and our actions, it affects our hearts, it affects our minds, it twists and warps our will. In our sin, no one even wants to seek God. That's Romans 3.11. Sin ruled over us before we were Christians, forcing us to obey its passions. That's Romans 6.14. So before we even think about God's sovereignty over our will, the biblical picture of our will and agency does not sound free and independent from any influences. A slave is not free. And so while this helps expose that a truly, quote-unquote, free will is a bit of an illusion and therefore not really a legitimate objection to election because, quite frankly, it doesn't exist— it doesn't, it doesn't help us understand what seems like an intuitive experience that we all have of autonomy, that at the end of the day, it certainly feels like we can do whatever we want to do. So how can God's election and predestination fit with our experience of this freedom in our own lives? Well, here's a picture I think might be helpful for grappling with these two seemingly contradictory truths of God's sovereignty and our own freedom. I have two little girls, Chloe and Davey, and just yesterday they were running around enjoying the beautiful weather in our backyard with Sadie as well, and they're all taking turns uh, riding in their little wagon and, and playing hopscotch. They're playing hide-and-seek. They're riding their bikes, and one would argue that they're operating with free will. They could do as they please. They, they could play whatever game they wanted to, but when it was time for dinner, they came inside. When their free will came against our free will as their parents, our will won out. Our kids have a lot of freedoms. Oftentimes, they think that they have more freedom than than they actually have. But at the end of the day, their will is under the responsibility and the sovereignty or the rule of us, their parents. So they will not stay up past 1 a.m. watching Bluey. They will not pack exclusively candy for their lunchboxes. They will not skip bath time, no matter how much they might will or want to. And so it is with God, our sovereign Father, who has a greater, more sovereign will than we do. We see this in lots of places in Scripture. Here are a few examples. Psalm 121, verses 3 and 4. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Proverbs 16, verse 9, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And Acts 17, verse 28, For in him, this is God, in him we live and move and have our being. To be quite honest, talking about free will in this passage is a bit humanistic. It puts our experiences and our thoughts as central, and then it demands how God and the Bible can explain them to us. When what we ought to do is see and behold God and how he has revealed himself to us and and his character and his attributes and making that central. And then we see how our conceptions and our thoughts and our feelings might need to change in light of who he is. So let me leave you with this quote. Uh, it is from the Belgic Confession of 1561 on the doctrine of God's sovereignty. As, as men and women got together and really thought through, what, what does this mean for us? This is what they came up with. This doctrine affords us unspeakable consolation, since we are taught thereby that nothing can befall us by chance, but by the direction of our most gracious and heavenly Father who watches over us with paternal care, keeping all creatures so under his power that not a hair of our head, for they are all numbered, not a sparrow can fall to the ground without the will of the Father, in whom we do entirely trust being persuaded that he so restrains the devil and all our enemies that without his will and permission, they cannot hurt us. The grounds of the doctrine of election and God's sovereignty being a consolation for us, how it can be an encouragement to us, it only comes after knowing and believing that God is actually good. So in other words, knowing God is sovereign is actually terrifying if we don't trust that he loves us. But once we are persuaded and convinced that He is our good and gracious Heavenly Father who watches over us with paternal care for our absolute and eternal good, then this doctrine is one that does not terrify us or makes us us anxious or angry, but gives us incredible peace. For we know that nothing is left to chance, not even our own salvation." Now, this truth not only gave Paul and the Romans peace, but it spurred them on to preach and share the gospel. Because as secure as God's election of his saints is, we do not know who the Isaacs and the Ishmaels are. We do not know who the Jacobs and the Esaus are. We, we don't know who God has predestined for adoption into his family, and we can't discern whom he has called and chosen for faith. But what we do know is that the means by which God has ordained that those whom he has called will will come to saving faith in him, the way that this happens is through the preaching and the sharing of the gospel with them. This is what Paul says very explicitly in chapter 10, starting in verse 14. Paul says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to even preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Look at verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The people in our lives who we've prayed for and preached the gospel to and who we wonder with confusion and maybe a little bit of frustration, why hasn't God saved them yet? The reality is that it is not over until it is over. If there is breath in their lungs, that means that there's still time for God to call them to faith and to justify them. And as long as there's breath in our lungs, we must feed the compulsion that is born from compassion to preach the gospel and to bring them the good news. Here's the freedom and the power that comes from resting in the doctrine of election when it comes to sharing the gospel. If God has chosen your dad or your mom or your sister or your brother or your best friend or your neighbor or your coworker, if God has chosen them before they were born to know him and be saved through faith in Jesus, there is nothing getting in the way of God making that happen. And that means that their salvation is not up to the eloquence of your words or the persuasiveness of your arguments, because those whom he Predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you to persevere in the mission to your family and your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers. We do not know who the Jacobs and the Esau's are. If we quit in communicating the gospel to them, we are making the assumption that that maybe they are the Esau's, when in reality they could be a Jacob. So persevere, brothers and sisters, in loving those who have seemingly even walked away from the faith and remember that God is the one who predestined, God is the one who calls, God is the one who justified, and God is the one who glorifies, not us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. The doctrine of election was not invented by Paul. It is consistent throughout God's word, and it's communicated by Jesus himself. In the Upper Room Discourse, just after the institution of communion, he reminds his disciples of this very important truth. John 15, verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you. At these words, all we can do is fall to our knees in absolute humility. Because we know that if we put our faith in Jesus and the work that he has done for us on the cross, our justification is a gift of pure grace and pure mercy. Why me? Why not them? Because for reasons literally only known to God, God loves you, God has laid down his life for you, and God offers you his righteousness as a gift to be received by faith. Will you take his offer? And if you do, know that God has preordained this moment to happen before you were even born. If you already have received his grace, celebrate and praise God. Adore him and stand amazed. Say thank you to him through song and through worship and praise and continue to walk in the calling to which you have been called and engage in the mission with God to bring his people home to himself. Let's pray. Father, you are the sovereign king and ruler of all of creation. Everything in existence is held together by the power of your word. Things visible, things invisible, There is no end to your sovereignty. There is no way for us to escape your will. You are in complete control. We can go down to the depths and you are there. We can go to the highest of highs and you are there. There's nowhere where we can go to escape from you. And God, those of us who know you are so thankful for that, God. Thank you that there is no way for us to run away from you and to get away from you. Lord, we pray for those who don't know you. We pray that they would trust in you and see your goodness and make this decision to give their lives to you through faith in you. And God, we pray that you would justify them once and for all and allow them to live in the peace of knowing that they were chosen before they were even born. Father, thank you for this moment that you have preordained for us. And God, this is a hard doctrine to wrestle with and understand. And so I pray that we as a church would continue to have conversations about these things. Thank you that you are a God who invites questions and and who desires that we know you more clearly and more fully. And so help us to continue to engage with these harder questions, Lord. I pray that we would press in. I pray that you would soften our hearts If if they're starting to harden up right now, Lord. I pray for conversation to happen around this idea of election. And Father, ultimately we thank you that you have made it possible for us to be chosen, God. And we thank you that you know us through and through. And even before we did anything, you have chosen to love us and to die for us. And so Lord, we receive that with thanksgiving this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that your word would continue to resonate in our hearts, that we would walk by these words and meditate on these words day and night this week. Father, we love you. We thank you that you first loved us and pray that you would bless us as we walk out of here today. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.